0: Goodbye Forever, Volume 2, by Chang Rumshe. Chapter 3, Part 1. Mojo Hand, 1972. We paid for our meals at the Hop Blossom and went back to the art school for the afternoon session of life drawing. This time it was short poses one minute and the pose would change. I could see how the morning session had set me up for that and I kept the same focus on getting the dynamics of the form down in a series of marks made without hesitation or uncertainty. At first I worked too quickly, but when I got the measure of the minute I learnt to use the 60 seconds at a pace that created a well-formed representation. Then came five-minute poses and ten-minute poses. And as the time increased, the earlier experiences proved their worth. That day improved my drawing skills more than I would have imagined possible. We worked through till five o'clock and then everyone headed off to the William Cobbett. I sat on the steps of the art school looking out at the evening sky. I'd felt an inclination to stare into the colour of it before socialising and performing. The colour of the sky was every imaginable shade. Of pink, orange, red, and maroon, together with mauve, lilac, lavender, amethyst, purple, violet, and indigo. There were also seams of azure, cobalt, cerulean blue, and impossible hints of green. Suddenly, I saw something I'd seen in my infancy. I'd often seen beings in the clouds as a young child. People, animals and hybrid entities. I thought they were real before the age of eight, but learnt to apprehend them as imagination, as sanctioned by my parents when I grew older. Here, however, there was something somewhat more than an imaginary creature from the bestiary of beatific bemusement. A goat and rider. They were well defined, if only for a few seconds. The wind gusted through them. Them. Maybe them is not accurate. A horse and rider in the conventional world would be them, in relation to there being two entities. The goat and rider I perceived was in some ways singular, but not like a centaur in which human and horse are combined. What I saw was simply a paranormal perplexity which defied scrutiny. The entirety of Dorje Legpa was never visible, only swiftly alternating facets of his being which built an impression in time. Seeing him was more like reading a paragraph in which he was described and in which the sense of the paragraph is only available in the final few words. The paragraph was made of cloud, erratically riven by cloud. The clouds continually coagulated, coalesced and vaporised. I tried to get what I saw into focus, and that is probably what dispelled the apparition. The name was there, but was I certain? Dorje Legpo was the sound I'd apprehended. I'd not had to search for the name, it self enunciated. I don't know how long I sat there on the steps, but darkness had fallen by the time I made my way to the William Cobbett. Everyone was there when I arrived. Frank greeted me and I was suddenly back in the recognisable human dimension. The place was buzzing. Frank raised an eyebrow. Then, with a motion of his head, he indicated that he was moving across to talk to Cynthia Grantham. Frank had had his eye on her. She's about as white as any human being can be without being albino. But she got a black ass, and that's for sure," he confided. So I'm going to see what kind of conversation I can get going with her. Good luck, Frank. Jess, make sure she don't eat you for breakfast, I replied, attempting an imitation of Frank's accent. You's getting it down, bro, Frank replied with a huge grin. Why, thank you, kind sir, I replied in mock upper-class English. I'm heading upstairs now to get tuned and so forth. Frank laughed. See you up there, bro, and if an I gets lucky, I might have me some company. There was something strange about being in this context. It was me... There was no doubt about that. But what of the me who'd sat with Dudjam Rinpoche in Bodanath? Where was he? He'd just been on the steps of the art school, witnessing a telling glimpse of Dorje Legpa. He was there in the William Cobbett, sure enough, but only I knew he was here. Well, Frank knew something of my time in Nepal, but nothing that was too otherworldly. I sometimes felt that it would be good to go and see Lama Chime at Cam House in Essex, in order that I could spend a short time being who I was in Boulder. I missed being that version of myself, even though that version was sitting right here. It occurred to me that there was something missing in how I felt. I experienced no difference in terms of my orientation toward Khyabjai Dujjom Rinpoche, but I felt different in relation to myself. It was as if I was unaccountably 10 years younger in terms of maturity. It was a loss of confidence in what the arrow tulku was supposed to be. It's not that I really felt like a tulku in Nepal and India because I had no idea how a tulku might feel. But the idea did not seem alien. It was like being half German but not really knowing what the German part was. I couldn't speak German beyond a rudimentary level and I knew even less Tibetan. It was like being a chameleon. In Nepal, with Kyabje Dujam Rinpoche, I could feel like the arrow Tulku. In the William Cobbett I simply had no idea who I was other than a blues performer who had once belonged to the Savage Cabbage Blues Band. With this ambivalent conjecture, I ascended the stairs to the room where I would perform. Sure enough, half an hour later, Frank walked in. He had a grin as large as a crocodile. He was arm in arm with Cynthia Grantham. She was also grinning, like all the Cheshire cats there'd ever been. Hey, Frank, I called out. You know Muddy Waters' song about the hoochie-coochie man? Frank nodded. He knew that song. Well, you are that man, Frank, no doubt about it. Godam Frank had all the luck. He was black. He had that fabulous accent. The ladies swooped down on him from every direction. Not that I'd want the attention Frank got from ladies. I just wanted a relationship with a lady whose father didn't want to have me hung by the neck till dead. But then, I had some luck too. Frank was no musician. Well, I was no musician either, not in real world stage terms. At the William Cobbett, however, I was all I needed to be, and perhaps a little more. Frank laughed and interrupted my brief reverie. Well, ain't that a goddamn coincidence? I just said the self-same thing to Cynthia here just fore we came up. I said, you got to come upstairs and hear the Hoochie Coochie Man, the one and only pink nigger. That's what he said, Cynthia grinned. And now we's here, Mr Hoochie Coochie Man. What you gonna play? It was almost time to kick off the evening. So I said, you called it, Frank, and proceeded to run my introduction. Good evening, people. Thank you for showing up equipped with porcupine quill quilted coiffure, garrulous Gabonese gibbons, macerated marsupial metacarpals, and all those good things my first number's a song for my friend frank burner here and for his charming lady cynthia it's a song muddy waters sang about gin and tonic but that's gin spelt d-j-i-n-n because this song's called hoochie coochie man I got a boom of laughter and applause for that. And that set me up to give it hell. Gypsy woman told my mother before I was born. You got a boy child coming. Gonna be a son of a gun. Gonna make pretty women jump and shout. And the world wanna know what's it all about Because I'm here, everybody knows I'm here I'm the hoochie-coochie man, everybody knows I am I played that song as an alternation of guitar and harp I had a loop on my guitar strap where I could slide the harp when I wanted to go back to guitar. It worked well and made up for my modest guitar skills. Then I threw a change on the words. On the eleventh hour Day before the seventh day On the sixth month Nurse and midwife say He was born for something We just cannot see I got seventeen shillings and sixpence You can mess all you want with me Cause I ain't here Lord knows I ain't even near Well I'm the hoochie coochie man Yes, several people know I am I got a black, fat fox stole Kimono too I'm John the Kangaroo I always jump the queue Gonna ask some nice lady Take me by the hand But I hope she don't say you ain't no hoochie-coochie man because I'm weird Everybody knows I'm weird I'm the spooky-looking man Everybody knows I am I'd usually break my set with a piece of poetry And this time I was keen to try out something new. Adrian Henry and Roger McGough had visited the Foundation year to give a talk on poetry. Those who were keen adjourned to the Seven Stars pub with them afterwards to talk and tipple. It was an illuminating evening for me because I was able to put a problem to them. I'd found that I'd reached some kind of impasse with poetry. I seemed to be stuck with having to be poetic. My poetry was too baroque and congested with metaphor. What I wanted to do was to bring something different into my writing. I wanted to be able to introduce a mundane element, but had no idea how to do that without it seeming contrived. Adrian Henry could understand the problem and made a brilliant suggestion. Why not just write a list of as many different places as you can imagine where poetry could be performed? So that is exactly what I did. And tonight was its first outing. I've got a thing for you now, good people. It's a thing, a thing I've never tried before. If you like it, you can thank Adrian Henry for giving me the idea. And if you don't, I suppose I'll have to rethink it. It's called List of Settings for Poetry. And it's dedicated to Adrian Henry and Roger McGough. The day will come when poetry will be recited on trains, buses, trams, ski lifts, escalators, elite escargot bistros, in dishevelled dormer refreshment interludes, dormant dorniers and dormobiles, duo Diablo dormitories, double entendre dovecotes, Victorian dormer windowed attics with bijou miniature fireplaces. Fried out combis. Sections of rusted aircraft fuselage left in fields awaiting rape-sealed rapeseed oil paint conflagrations of Vincent van Gogh. Cross channel ferries, Rubenesque rigmarole riots, inviolate brassiere conventions The Albert and Victoria Museum. The Albert Hall, replete with holes. Stately home garden parties, replete with salmon and cucumber sandwiches. In plum patisserie potting sheds. Atavistic abattoirs of abstract art. Ghastly glens under grimoires of moonlight. Crab apple orchards. Gallows tree arboretums. Covert culvert confectionery con- congresses, airport waiting lounges, Simone de Beauvoir reenactment soirees, sultry skylark meadows, fundamentalist ski resorts, and bicycle sheds. The day will come where poetry will be recited in Hay on Wye bookshops gentlemen's outfitters, railway sidings, the White House, street cafes in Paris, the Department of Promontories, agricultural shows, yachting clubs, Baudelaire's pied-à-terre, Byzantine ballerina boudoirs, late-night octogenarian banquets, and Siberian florist shops, Elizabethan choir stalls, bathroom display suites, merchant ivory film sets, and mines, Sodom and Gomorrah. Nautical news agents, seditious saddleries, royal weddings, metallurgical laboratories, public swimming pools, pubic depilation parlours amongst potted palms. St Paul's Cathedral, Vicarage Tea Parties, The Chrysler Building, Church Fates, La Grotte de Lascaux, Equestrian Centres, Inventive Inventory Symposia, Weight Watchers Meetings, Lord Montague's Motor Museum, Abandoned Airfields, Shopping Precincts, Legendary Pissoirs, Old olive groves, Honourable Society of Charles de Gaulle impersonator reunion dinners, and dainty daguerreotype departments. The day will come when poetry will be recited in sinister hairdressers, anonymous meetings in Cornish tin mines, disused railway sidings piers where pole vaulting demonstrations are presented by gargoyle fancier fellowships, promenade concerts, Formula One race tracks, subterfuge prismatic incantation league rallies, sheepdog trials, Tupperware parties at dude ranches, rainbow trout farms and doctors surgeries, parent-teacher associations, Amongst shoals of green turtles navigating the mercurially-mazed Sargasso Sea. Burlesque Brigadoon Bar Rooms. Belligerent Bugle Consultation Rooms. Budgerigar Bursary Appointment Bureau. Ballroom Dancing Competitions. Darts Championships. West Kennet Longbarrow, Vegetable Markets madcap mosaic sites antique antique attics blood donor clinics madame tussaud's waxworks french chateau lawns greyhound tracks greyhound buses greystoke castle estate the orient express trailer park mortuaries and patent-leather-indebtedness cliques. The day will come when poetry will be recited in teepees during the Olympic Games, derelict wayside wickiups, wigwams whilst highly skilled great master copyists reproduce the works of Bruegel and Hieronymus Bosch, marquees once owned by Le Marquis de Sade, igloos frequented by Frank Zappa's Eskimo euphoniums. Huts, lodges, gatehouses, motile motels, harbours, chalets, cottages, villas, palaces, porticos, porches, entrances, doorways, balconies, verandas, terraces. Ragnarok roust about rostrums, egregiously engrossed ego ingresses. Grievous egresses with gregarious egrets. Suburban sunburned sitting rooms replete with sautéed settees sans sooty Grizzled garden allotments, natural amphitheatres open to raging torrents of wind dispatched by wings of cloud. Once seen delving the boiling heart of the ocean where boarding kennel ante-rooms eat the Houses of Parliament, and leave its ministers, both with and without portfolio, suspended in mid-air as pinstriped, bowler-hatted gossamer. There were another eight of the nine-line stanzas, making thirteen in all, but this should suffice as an example. When I concluded, the audience was silent. They sat staring at me, and I felt that I'd just ruined the evening for everyone. Then, as if released from a spell, They launched into a gale of applause that was lengthy in duration. I had to agree to recite it again the following week.